morning and welcome to the Skinny here on Friday, September 29th here on WMNF Radio. Uh, I'm Mitch Perry, senior political reporter for the Florida Phoenix, joined by my colleague, freelance reporter, Ben Montgomery. Uh, Ray Roa is not here. Good morning, Ben. Hey, good morning, Mitch. And listen, Ray isn't here, but Ray threw a heck of a party the other night. Uh, and it reminded me how important that whole uh, thing is to this region, best of the bay. Yeah, uh, there were there were creative people of all stripes uh, packed into the Hard Rock Event Center uh, Wednesday night for the Best of the Bay Awards, uh, which Ray helps organize. Uh, of course, this acknowledges the um, the popular uh, opinion uh, based on businesses around the Tampa Bay region. A lot of uh, a lot of people there celebrating their good fortune by being uh, pop- being popular. You know, it's, I was of course you know with CL Creative Loafing for five years, and so I was I, you know Ray's taking the day off because I, I know he's all burned out because it, it's really oh uh, he was burnt. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a real intense labor uh, situation. They don't have a whole lot of employees at CL putting that issue together. Um, but I always remembered about that, and it is a huge issue because there was like the kind of the Critics' choices, if you will, and there's also the audience. You know, people vote in. But myself, as one of the editors there, when it came to uh, politics and news and even media personalities, you know, I had the power actually because it was really just me. I mean, there's a few other people. They'll say like so and so was like, or or you know, you had the, fo- the the fans voting, but you also could annoy people, you know, what have you. And it yeah. was enormous power because people take this uh, that, that publication very. I mean, that annual issue so uh, important. You know, take it really to heart. And um, and so you make a lot of people happy when you say, you know, you're the top whatever uh, brewery in St. Yeah. Petersburg or what have you. Eyebrow artist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Of stuff. I, you know, I, keep, I look forward to getting the issue. So that's why Ray is not here. So, by the way, we're going to talk. Uh, tell us what we're going to be talking about today. Um, we are going to talk about. Uh, let's see here. Senate Bill one seven one eight. Well, also, oh, also, yeah, we're gonna get talk to that. We're, yeah, sure. we're gonna, and we're also gonna talk about the Supreme Court, or more accurately, the frustrations that people, more and more people, have with the court, and what realistically can be done about that. You know, there are so few jobs in this country uh, that once you get hired, you can never get fired, uh, and the Supreme Court is one of them. And obviously, with some of the you know way they've gone in recent years, a lot of people are like trying to figure out how to do something differently about that. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to have Alan Cohen in studio here a little later. Actually, Alan's on right now, but we're going to talk to him in a few minutes about that. And we are going to talk about the Senate Bill of 1718. But when, before we get to that, um, we did have a big debate, Republican presidential debate uh, on the other night, Wednesday night from Simi Valley, the Southern California, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. Um, and... Uh, you know, our man, Ron DeSantis, was center stage there right in the middle because, of course, the front runner, Donald Trump, was not there. And so everybody's like 40 points behind. But I guess overall, I looked at this the other day. DeSantis is roughly like 14 percent nationally. The other else is like 12 and 11. So he's not really dominating second place. But they had him there in the middle. And, um, you and know, in fact, he has fallen back a little in polling. Right. Well, uh, in New Hampshire, he has. Yeah. And I mean, it's close in terms of like between second and five. But like and I said this last week, he's I, in my opinion. I mean, I was still a possibility for him to win. New Hampshire's just too moderate. Uh, he, they're unhappy. Some of his supporters there to like, why aren't you here, Ron? I think he's smart enough to know, like, I'm, I, I don't want to take too much time there. I'm not going to probably 
win there. I mean, Chris Christie, that's one of the few states that he's actually polling decently. But look, they all trail massively behind President, former President Donald Trump. But the debate the other night was, was interesting uh, at a couple of levels. One was um, DeSantis got, frankly, schooled a little bit on the issue of health insurance in the state. Uh, we had a situation where Stuart Varney, one of the Fox Business uh, moderators, asked him. In fact, I want to bring up my story if I could here for a moment. As here. you bring it up, let yeah. me set this up a little bit. The whole pitch so far has been Make America Florida, right? Which when I first heard uh, heard this as a campaign slogan, um, I sort of thought this is not going to work. Like right out of the gate, this is not going to work. I don't think America really wants to be Florida. And that's a hard message to sell, in my opinion, to people in New Hampshire. Well, you know, a couple things on that. It, amongst the, amongst the real politically minded, you know, people on the, you know, either left or right, but in this case, the right who, you know, yeah, maybe Florida is that. Uh, but most people are not focused so much on, you know, the poli- who's the governor of the state. I mean, that's not where you people, you know, that want to migrate to. Now, I think some people appreciate that who were not big fans of the lockdowns that happened in some of these areas. We all know that that's been like the COVID story that, that DeSantis has kind of ascended himself to. But right, overall, everybody's got their own issues and their own things. And he has ran on the Florida record as being, t- and that's why he jammed through so much of this legislation, including the SB 1718, we'll talk about shortly, the immigration bill, uh, the union busting bill, all these things that they were like, they wanted to like, he wanted to like brag about them, boast about them. But Stuart Varney, the other night, uh, we don't have the sound of this, but I'll just like tell people if you weren't listening, he basically asked him, he said, um, Governor, uh, you basically, you have two and a half million people in Florida who don't have health insurance. And he said, that's worse than the national average. Can Americans trust you on this? And DeSantis, you know what he did immediately? He talked about inflation. And he said, uh, uh, he's, you know, we said, I think this is a symptom of our overall economic decline. Everything has gotten more expensive. You see insurance rates going through the roof. And then he went on to criticize Bidenomics and discuss his energy plan before he finally came around to addressing health care. And he said that we have, quote, big pharma big insurance and big government, and we need to tackle that and have more power for the people and the doctor-patient relationship. And this is a minute and nine seconds. I timed this. I wrote this in my story yesterday. Then Stuart Varney right, fired back and said, Governor, why is your record in Florida on health insurance worse than the national average? He came right back at him on this. And DeSantis went on to say there's been a population boom in the state, and the state does does not do – he bragged about this. We don't have a lot of welfare benefits in Florida. He said, quote, we basically say this is a field of dreams. You can deal, do well in the state, but we're not going to be like California and have massive numbers of people on government programs without work requirements. We believe you work, and you got to do that, and so that goes for all the welfare benefits. Well, time out here. There's In, in terms of the, the way that people could get more insurance in Florida is if the state had expanded Medicaid. And uh, as I know, there's not a talk about like you have to show work requirements for that. That's not what this goes to. The federal government pays 90 percent of Medicaid to the states. Um, it is more of an ideological, I think, issue for states, the few states who haven't done this yet. Again, we're only 10 states. Other GOP 10 states, states that have rejected. Medicaid. Well, they, yeah, they have not decided to do it. it we're, it's down to 10. And some, several red states in, uh, recently actually have also done this. In some cases, they've had to go around their legislature because the, the governor and the legislature were certainly ideological, didn't want to do it, and they uh, did constitutional amendments, which we know we have done here in Florida when it comes to things like raising the minimum wage, uh, medical marijuana, what have you, things that the legislature is not going to do. And so, uh, but I, I, I thought, it, you know, it was not a really great moment for the governor there because, uh, you know, he just 
went flat-footed, as, as I wrote about there. He got hit on a couple other things. Another thing actually just came up yesterday on energy. So, I, if some, again, the listeners might recall, and unfortunately we don't have the sound for this, but Nikki Haley got in his face a little bit about saying that because I guess the, the more conservative or, you know, thing that Republicans are running on when it comes to energy is, you know, nothing with a, quote, Green New Deal, whatever that means. But but they're for, you know, drilling, basically, you know, which is incredibly unpopular here in Florida. We know that. Right. But it is popular amongst Republicans in other areas of the country. And also, you know, again, they're you know, they think there's too much hype for solar or what have you. Uh, so Nikki Haley said, you know, you have done, uh, before you were governor, you said you no offshore drilling and no fracking. You know, you bragged about that, you know, and again, like that was a bad thing, right? But in the Republican world, I guess it is. But Ron, uh, Ron was like, that's not true, that's not true. But so what ultimately happened was, we, we looked into this yesterday. I, I did, again, the story on this and a couple of things. One is DeSantis was elected the same day that Floridian, Florida voters in 2018 passed a constitutional amendment banning uh, offshore oil and gas drilling in the state waters. OK, so that happened the same day. He did send an executive order uh his first, second day in office saying that he did not want to do any fracking in the state or do any drilling. And again, the state already, the, you know, voters had already voted. You can't really do any drilling. But he goes out in the road now, now that he's, you know, waiting for Republican votes. And he said, uh, let's see here, this was in July 31st, a couple months ago in Rochester, New Hampshire. He says, I don't support, somebody said to me, what's your energy plan all about? He says, I think people in Florida, uh, people have kind of misconstrued. We said, we have a constitutional amendment that does not allow offshore drilling. Uh, so that's something that we honor. But he says, that is not saying that I think that should apply to Texas or Louisiana or, and all of that. So that will continue. And we want them to be able to do it. And we want them to be able to use hydraulic fracturing. It's been something that's been very effective. And it's really taken our country to be the world's leading energy producer. But clearly states in Florida, we're a coastal state. We've had oil spills. We put that in our constitution. Our voters did. And that's something that as governor that I've followed and respected. So basically saying, yeah, we did this in Florida, but I don't say we, we don't have to do this other places. And, and and so that's why it was kind of confusing to figure out, you know, because a lot of charges happen in these debates. It's fast and furious. You know, you know, where's PolitiFact when you need them? You're not going to get that immediately there. Who's talking the truth, telling the truth or not? Um, and so it was an interesting exchange there. We got a caller here. Um, so we'll go with the phones here. Again, we're going to talk, bring up, talk about the Supreme Court. I'm sorry. Uh, what would you say, Ben? I'm just going to add that uh, former Tampa Bay Times writer Michael Cruz has a great uh, profile of Nikki Haley and Politico this morning. Uh, you can check it out, but he basically stakes out this idea that Nikki Haley has gained some momentum here recently because she is playing, uh, she's playing nice. Haley, in her singular efforts to span what at times can feel like an unbridgeable gap between the pre and post Trump GOP, uh, and the, and the, the um, commentators are pointing at this as being uh, sort of key to her getting some momentum, not the Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis sort of um, message of uh, division, uh, the pro Trump sort of hard line. Look, there have been several polls, at least two, I shouldn't say, you know, more than several, two that show Nikki Haley beating Joe Biden by more than a few points, actually. Uh, I think that would be the most dangerous threat to Joe Biden's reelection, at least according to the polls right now. Uh, again, more scrutiny, maybe she'll falter. Uh, but that is interesting, uh, basically. Now, again, she's right where Ron DeSantis is and where everybody else is, 40 points behind. Uh, she had uh, got good marks from this the other night, got better marks in the first debate. Whether that's going to uh, really mean anything, I, I still keep you know, hold out that that may, because once these, once these trials begin with Donald Trump next year, 
Uh, okay, we've got a couple of people on the line here. Uh, so we'll go to that right now as we wait for a reporter to come in here for a moment here. Uh, hi, uh, you're on WMNS The Skinny Program. Good morning. Okay. Is the caller there, so to speak? No. Okay. How about how about this? Hello. No callers. I'm, I'm getting a message back here. Okay. Okay. No that's callers. funky. Okay. Hey, I wonder if uh, I wonder if it's a good idea to bring Alan on now. Yeah. Why don't we? Because you know we'll... we, we, this man's got a, he's yeah. an important man, and we don't want to have him sitting around here. Uh, Alan Cohn, a former ABC 28 reporter, uh, former congressional candidate, Democrat in the Central Florida area. Alan, good morning. Good morning to you. Okay. So let's like, let me scramble up here to talk about what we're going to be talking about with you, and that's about the Supreme Court. So let's 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 tell people a little bit about this situation. Of course, we all know that uh, uh, you know there's been these. Well, let's talk about it. So, your, your name of your group. Talk to me about the group that you're with now. It's term limit the court, and the idea came from actually one of my supporters in, in the last congressional race, who is deeply concerned about the country and uh, traveled the country. And the one thing, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or independent. Uh, is that that people think that that uh, the, there are people in Washington who are been there way too long, uh, and including the the Supreme Court, and we're we're paying the the price for this right now. What we're seeing on the Supreme Court is uh, not just differences of opinion in terms of the law, and it's not just uh, you know errors in terms of public disclosures that many politicians inadvertently make. Uh, you know, we have Supreme Court justices who lied in their nomination hearings, and we have Supreme Court justices who, because uh, there are no guardrails, no term limits, think that they could do whatever they want, including taking luxury vacations from billionaires, taking sweetheart land deals. Um, and, you know, people are, are angry. Um, the other thing is that if you look at uh, presidential elections since the, the mid-1970s, Democrats have, have won the popular vote uh, 11 times to, I believe, seven times for the, the Republicans. But Republican presidents have nominated far more Supreme Court justices, and it has led to the imbalance that we see now where uh, what is coming out of the court is, is uh, you know, not – uh, aligned with how Americans have voted for many years, and that's and now you know we have uh, rights uh, that have been in place for over fifty years taken away from from women, um, and uh, and 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 many other decisions that are not in line with American public opinion, uh, and so there are members of Congress like Hank Johnson from Georgia, Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler. Uh, who have just filed a, a bill in uh, the House, uh, and there's going to be a version of it in the U.S. Senate uh, to limit Supreme Court justices to 18 years, and it guarantees every president uh, at least two Supreme Court picks. And over the over time, uh, that will bring more balance to to the court. And uh, you know, it's also I- important to to remember that that, that the University of Chicago Law School uh, recently did a study showing that if we do not change 
how Supreme Court justices are, are picked, it will be 44 years until the balance of the, of the court changes. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, the time is now and we've created an organization built for the long haul. Yeah, it's called, uh, let's see, it is Term Limit the um, term limit the Group, is that what it's called? Term Limit the Court. The Term Limit the Court, I'm sorry, Term Limit the Court. And is this a national uh, effort? Yes, we launched it last week on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, as uh, Congressman Johnson, uh, uh, you know, filed his new legislation. Uh, we're going to be reaching out. We, we have we have an incredible board of advisors uh, that includes uh, Andrew Warren, yeah. who is uh, the the duly elected state attorney uh, from Tampa. We have we have a, a retired uh, federal judge from Boston. Nancy Gertner, who just served on the president's commission on the Supreme Court, which uh, has opened the door to term limits as a constitutional uh, method of, of, of the, the court. Let me mm-hmm. pick up on that. Again, we're speaking with Alan Cohn here. He was with Term Limit the Court, this uh, organization he's just talking about right now that's looking at trying to do something a little bit differently with this whole lifetime appointments with the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's true to Alan, you know, the polls, um, the, the, the Supreme Court has never been hold, held in a lower esteem we see in, in national polls um, and the like here. But, and part of this is due to ProPublica's reporting on Clarence Thomas and his relationship with the Dallas developer Harlan Crow, who's been funding Thomas's vacations for decades. Yeah, and and so the term, uh, term well, a couple of things I ha- want to ask you, but you mentioned the constitutional amendment. Let, let's face it; these things are impossible to do. People talk about constitutional amendments all the time, but I heard from some. I talked to somebody yesterday about this who said, "I think you can only go through a constitutional amendment that you can't change it through legislation." And now I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I know in Florida, for example, where they recently, a few, uh, 2018, I believe it was, it was a constitutional amendment where the man- they had mandatory retirement age for Supreme Court justices in Florida. It had been 70 years old. They, uh, now it's 75. It was too late for the three liberal Supreme Court justices who had to leave in 2018. But nevertheless, you know, the, the state did that through the Constitution. Um, can you talk about that, though? The the method that has been discussed uh, that's contained in uh, Congressman Johnson's uh, legislation uh, and has also been talked about in the, the, the Presidential uh, Commission on the Supreme Court would have 18-year terms on the Supreme Court. And then after that, justices would obtain senior status, which is what happens in the rest of, of the federal judiciary. So they, you know, you're not kick, kicking the, the justices to the curb. They, are, they still have, maintain their offices and their salaries, and they're available uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, illnesses, deaths, and, uh, and if, if uh, justices believe that they, you know, they have to remove themselves from, from uh, decisions. And the, the, the White House Commission and other legal scholars believe this is a way to actually get around the requirement for a constitutional okay. amendment. And that what's, that's what gives them uh, the confidence that this is constitutional. What do you feel like have been the particularly partisan rulings that have come down on this court? Well, look at, at abortion. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're looking at American public uh, opinion, uh, people believe in uh, the right, to, right to, of women to make their own health care decisions. Yeah. And uh, this, is, this was considered settled law precedent. Uh, and, uh, and because you have, you know, decisions made by the Supreme Court that uh, are, are, you know, they threw precedent right out. You get a situation where, for the first time in in our recent memory, that uh, a constitutional right has been been thrown out, and and you could begin in 
and and there um you know the the issue in terms of student loan uh debt uh uh you know issues in, involving uh you know gun control uh, all of these are are on the table and uh the, you know even the supreme court or just some justices had said that uh other issues like same sex marriage might well be back on, on the table so uh, this court has shown that you know it is it is partisan, and the the whole idea. Um, and I, you know, Dan Goldman, the congressman from New York, said this last week in, in in Washington, is that the Supreme Court should not belong to any political party. Right. And right now, that's not what we have. Now, if you go on to our website, termlimitthecourt.com, uh, dot com, the first quote you see is for from Chief Justice John Roberts who uh, has been out there and saying that uh, he is, you know, supports the idea uh, of 18-year uh, oh, really? terms. Mm. Uh, okay. Not only that, uh, you know, Ted Cruz is, is, has said mm. that he is open to this idea. The, the battle right now may fall into a, a partisan, um, uh, you know. Right, um, because it looks good for the GOP right now with these three people in their 50s that Donald Trump uh, nominated or appointed. Uh, we've got, by the way, let's see. Uh, We've got, I think, Andrew Warren here, your partner here with Term Limit the Court. Uh, Andrew, are you there? Hi, Mitch. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here. So you're, of course, a partner with Alan Cohen on this Term Limit the Court. Um, and tell me why, you know, why you want to be a part of this, why you think this is such an important uh, uh, thing that we need to do here in this country when it comes to the Supreme Court. Well, Mitch, oh, we've been watching a partisan divide, you know, tear apart our country for the past few years. And the Supreme Court is supposed to be an institution that is above all the partisanship. And at a time when, you know, Democrats and Republicans and Americans are fighting about not just the candidates they support, but we're fighting about the music we listen to and the, the beer we drink. And, you know, everything has become political these days. It makes it even more important that we have an institution like the court that is above the politics. The problem is that People have lost confidence in the court, uh, public confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court at a historic low. We've seen huge decisions made by the Supreme Court that people disagree with. And that that leads to this. But the bigger problem is that people feel like the Supreme Court's no longer accountable. And when the Supreme Court is having ethical issues that are on the front page where justices are doing things that no one can get away with in any other profession and they're saying, yeah, don't worry, this isn't a big deal. That's causing a crisis of confidence in the American people, and it's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, Andrew, let me ask you this, and again, this is a suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren on the line here with us. Uh, this is something, you know, you or Alan can answer, but I'll, I'll ask you, Andrew, on the phone here. Um, one thing I'm interested in about this proposed legislation you guys are talking about is, okay, so 18-year term limits, but we do have nine justices on this court as we speak. Would this be a grandfathered thing, or, or how does this work with the active justices right now? Well, Mitch, it's a great question. There are a few different ways to effectuate the accountability that we are pushing for at term of the courts. But, you know, the 18-year proposal, if implemented, one way to do it is not to grandfather people in, but to have essentially rolling uh, tenure, rolling term limits for these nine Supreme Court justices. And one of the advantages of having the 18-year terms or any fixed-year terms is that you're taking away the partisanship that exists now over the appointment process. Because the way it would work is that it's not random 
when there's an opening on the Supreme Court. It's not when someone decides to retire or when someone unfortunately passes away. But instead, every president knows that he or she will have two appointments during that four-year term. And so there's consistency, which makes it less partisan. And it creates accountability because you know that people are going to serve 18 years on the court. And in those 18 years, they do the best they can. And then it rolls over to a continual rollover to people who are accountable to the American people. What's the best argument against this? Well, Andrew, uh, I'll give that one to you, know, to you because, you know, this, as I said, uh, this has not traditionally been a partisan issue. And in fact, one member of our advisory board is a Republican. He's the former attorney general of Idaho, a former Supreme Court justice in, in Idaho. So you've had people on both sides of, of, of the partisan divide uh, be supportive of this idea. Interesting. Yeah. Mitch, that's a, that's a really interesting question, of course. You know, what's the best argument against doing this? I would say the best argument against doing it is that for 250 years almost, uh, the structure that was set up by our founders has worked pretty well. The problem is that uh, politics have changed. And this is not just a reaction to the problems of the moment. This is a longer-term solution to what we think is going to happen in the future and what we've seen happening over the past generation. It used to be that Supreme Court justices were appointed in their 50s, and they served for typically about 15 to 20 years. Now life expectancy is longer because the process has become more partisan. Their presidents are putting younger and younger justices on the court. So now you're seeing the average tenure having changed from 15 to 20 years to being 35 to 40 years. So that is a generational change we've seen over the last few decades. And even though there is an argument for, well, things have worked pretty well for the past 200 plus years, yes, which is why we're not proposing a radical change. This is just something to make sure that we're continuing to have the Supreme Court be accountable to the American people and that third branch of government that we all have the utmost confidence in. And let me add uh, just uh, two things to this. Uh, you know, the whole idea about lifelong tenure on the Supreme Court is to remove justices from public pressure and, and politics. Uh, but we have justices right now who are so detached from American public opinion hmm. uh, that they feel secure to... Uh, to pursue radical agendas. The other thing is that uh, because, as Andrew said, that it has been in the interest of, of presidents to appoint justices who are incredibly young, um, they don't have the lifelong experiences that, that other more seasoned jurists uh, may have. Now, uh, this may wait, result, if you know that there is an 18-year term, uh, there would be less uh, compunction uh, uh, about uh, appointing someone who may be in their, their 50s uh, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the bench. And that brings along, uh, you know, decades worth of experience to the court. You know, I want to say, again, we're speaking with uh, Alan Cohn and Andrew Warren about term limit, the court, this group that's looking at a different way of addressing the issue of lifetime tenure on the Florida Supreme or on the U.S. Supreme Court. I do want to bring this up and it goes, Ben, to your question about what's the you know argument against this. It's not so much I think it's a, a, a argument that I would espouse, but the way that American politics works, which is inertia, which is I think this is very promising 
uh, that this is out there. These bills are out there. But but we know that historically, when it comes to big change, and this would be big change, that it sometimes can take a while, maybe too long in, in too many cases when it comes to, say, civil rights in America. But it just doesn't you know, change overnight. The, but certainly the tenure is ready right now. Obviously, these horrible uh, publications that have come out about not just Justice Alito, but just, or, uh, Justice Thomas, but Sam Alito as well, uh, in terms of their kind of enjoying. And then Jenny Thomas, you know, it's really And let, let me bad. just point out also that ProPublica is reporting five days ago uh, a story that hasn't gotten the amount of attention that I think it deserves. But uh, they're, they're reporting uh, a sourced story uh, that that says that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas attended at least two uh, Koch brothers donor events um, in the past uh, few decades, and that puts him in the extraordinary position of having served as a fundraising draw for a network that's brought cases before the Supreme Court. There's problem right there, right? Like, why? Where's the outrage over uh, what Justice Thomas has done? You know, for the one thing, you know, I my most of my career uh, has been as an investigative reporter investigating stuff like this and uh, you know public figures taking advantage of their position and uh, you know in terms of of my reporting and and what I have seen when these things have been pointed out and it reaches to, to a point that in, in many cases, those public figures uh, had to leave their, their, their office one way or the other. But there is no mechanism here. Uh, you know, it is less than likely one could ever impeach a Supreme Court justice. So right. there is no mechanism to restore uh, ethical balance. There, there are a number of organizations that are fighting right now for reform on the Supreme Court. Some are going after, uh, you know, a, a better uh, ethics ethics rules. Others for ex, uh, expanding the court. Uh, we we consider many of these organizations friends and allies. We've picked this lane because, uh, you know, we believe that this is, uh, as Andrew said, a, a better way to restore public confidence in the court. Now Thomas writes in right now, and this is something that we heard before during the campaign uh, of 2019-2020 amongst the Democratic candidates, which is, uh, for lack of a better term, quote unquote, pack the court. Uh, Thomas writes, "What's the problem with adding more judges?" Now I have my opinion on that, which is that it would be an arms race. That if you know you add more right now to you know make it a little more liberal, what have you, a Republican gets in, and you know next time around you you know, they add more because there's you could just keep on adding and adding. Andrew, what's what's your thoughts about that? The idea of quote unquote packing the court. Well, I think it's important that the court represent the American people. And, uh, you know, the number has been fixed at nine for a long time. It didn't start with nine, uh, you know, and uh, last century, you know, Tom, uh, Franklin Roosevelt talked about expanding the court. I don't think the idea is out of bounds. I think if we do it in order to make sure that there's representation on the court that reflects the American people, and maybe it means adding a few seats, that's not necessarily a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But you raise a good point, which is that you don't want it to become an arms race. And the idea of changing the Supreme Court, frankly, should never be reactionary to an issue of the day, right? You brought up uh, what's going on with Justice Thomas. I mean, that is an ethical problem that needs to be dealt with. And whether we need more ethical accountability on the court or stricter rules or possibly impeachment, whatever it may be, that's to deal with the issue of the day. What we are proposing is 
for the long-term health of the Supreme Court and the long-term health of our democracy. You know, when we, right now, again, if you're just tuning in right now, it's 1137 in the a.m. You're listening to The Skinny here, Mitch Perry with Ben Montgomery. We're also speaking about the issue of the Supreme Court with uh, Alan Cohn and Andrew Warren. And, Andrew, we're, we're going to switch over to another topic in a few minutes here. So before I let you go, Andrew, I do have to ask you, uh, obviously, you're still suspended here uh, after Ron DeSantis did that over a year ago at your job at the Hillsborough County State Attorney Office. Now, just recently, uh, some prominent members of the Florida legal community, for, including former Attorney General Bob Butterworth, uh, former Florida Supreme Court Justice Peggy Kintz, uh, Barry Richard, who defended George Bush in the 2000 recount, they have written a letter to, uh, let's see here, to the um, uh, the chief judge here in Hillsborough County, uh, the Judicial Circuit, saying that because the state attorney, attorney post is vacant, then uh, Chief judge, judge Christopher Sabella can put somebody else in the job under Florida law, and they're writing that that should be you. Do you have any, any comment about this? Um, well, they're raising a point that because the governor's suspension on me was uh, declared illegal. I mean, there was no dispute about that. A federal court said that the governor broke state and federal law. And obviously the judge said that he felt he didn't have the power to reinstate me. But he was crystal clear in his finding that the suspension uh, was illegal under the law. And what these... Uh, I mean, you have a former attorney general of the state of Florida. You have a prominent Republican lawyer. You have a former Florida Supreme Court justice, all in agreement saying that the invalidation of the suspension invalidates the appointment of the you know illegal acting state attorney who's there now. So uh, it does appear that the chief judge would have the power uh, to appoint someone. Now, you mentioned that the letter suggests that they appoint him. I don't believe that's what the letter said. Okay. I believe they were just informing the chief judge that under Florida law, he has the power to appoint someone because you're in a situation right now where, frankly, the elected state attorney, me, is unable to do my job because I've been unlawfully suspended, and the the appointed acting state attorney is there illegally. So you have someone who actually, no one who's lawfully in charge of that office which creates huge problems in terms of appellate issues and just the, the foundations of our democracy. Okay, well, great. Well, Andrew, we're going to let you go right now. Thank you so much for talking about this issue, uh, and we're going to continue to follow it uh, along the ways here because it's obviously not going to go away anytime soon. So thank you very much, Andrew Warren, for that. Um, thank you, Andrew. Mr. Ben, thanks so much. Okay, great. And uh, uh, Alan Cohn, uh, it's great to see you, as always. Uh, and keep up the good work here. Uh, so thank you, Alan. We're going to transition now. We have Jacob Reyes is in the house, I think. I see him over there under the computer. Hey, good morning. How's it going? So we're going to transition here and talk about um, uh, a piece that Jacob just recently wrote in Teen Vogue. So as folks know here, uh, we mentioned this last week of the program for a few minutes here, and that is, of course, uh, SB 1718, the anti-immigration bill that was signed into law by the governor earlier this year. The legislature passed that. Of course, it does a number of things to crack down on uh, illegal immigrants here in Florida, which is a rarity in itself because, in fact, uh, immigration is considered a federal issue, and states don't usually do this. Once in a while, 
Um, you know, uh, you know, but, but but Governor wanted to be really proactive here and uh, says, you know, we've seen him do this in terms of those flights to Martha's Vineyard. So briefly, you know, the legislation, it makes E-Verify mandatory for any employer with 25 or more employees. That's, of course, the, the system that verifies if somebody, you know, their status legally. It enforces penalties for those employing undocumented people. Uh, we talked about the, the person, uh, you cannot drive somebody across state lines if you know they're undocumented. Um, also, it prohibits local governments from using ID cards. Uh, it validates ID cards issued to undocumented immigrants in other states and requires hospitals to collect and submit data on the cost of providing health care to illegal aliens excuse, or undocumented immigrants. Excuse me. I hate using that phrase. I don't believe in that illegal alien phrase. Um, so uh, since this passage, we've heard scattered reports about undocumented people leaving Florida uh, and some it's certainly hurting certain industries. And so, again, you can raise with Axios Tampa Bay, who wrote this piece about this young person. Uh, I don't know how, exactly how to pronounce her. What's her name? Susanna Mata. Yeah. Olivia. Okay. Susanna. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much for coming in here to talk to us about this. So, talk to us about about the person you profiled. Yeah, Susanna is one of 119,000 immigrants who six, since 2018 have applied for legal protection under the Violence Against Women Act. Um, and, and why is that? So Susanna, uh, you know, born and raised, or not born, but uh, raised in Tampa. She's she, born in Barranquilla, Colombia, right? Yeah, yeah, she's from Colombia. She came here uh, to Tampa at six years old. She went to school here. She learned the language here. She met friends here. Um, and she uh, grew up um, with this understanding that her life was limited because of her lack of legal status in the U.S., um, you know, and that led her to, to her try family, to... Her family getting over here required a bunch of favors, right? Um, it required help, yeah. as it often does. And when people help you, you're in some ways beholden to them. And in, and sometimes that creates tricky situations like, like Susanna's. Definitely. And uh, in Susanna's case, uh, she was looking for a way to get citizenship before she turned 18 so she could go to college. And a relative of hers, uh, her cousin, offered to adopt her uh, to petition for her citizenship. And at the time, you know, Susanna thought the offer seemed too good to be true, and ultimately it was. Um, she was raped by this man for two years, um, and she was kept silent, you know, because he had told her that if she told anybody that he would have her deported. And so she she lived with that for for two years, unaware that you know there were legal protection uh, allowed to her, you know that uh, that she could have uh, used uh, to to get out of that situation. And it took her two years before she found out that she could um, that she could get out of this situation. And part of her awakening and part of her sort of finding her voice came in an unexpected way. She was in Parkland. The day a shooter walked in, right? Parkland High School? Yeah, so her her cousin lived in, in Parkland, Florida. She went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and um, she was a junior uh, when the shooter walked in um, with a semi-automatic rifle. She didn't know the school well enough to walk out of it. Um, and so she stood in her classroom and, you know, she, you know, she told me that at the time she almost hoped to die because of the hell that was going on at home. But afterwards, after this event, she felt, uh, called to, to do something about it. She felt that it could have been prevented and Parkland, uh, the Parkland shooting served as an avenue for her to find her voice. 
it gave a lot of people voices, didn't it? I mean, if, if you know, there, there's no silver lining, of course, in a mass murder. But uh, to think about uh, the folks who have come out of that situation, and I'm talking about... Uh, you know, uh, David Hogg yeah, and we Ex Gonzalez and um, uh, Maxwell Frost and sort of the, the generation. But it also includes people like Susan, who, Susanna, who's not been in the limelight in the same way that some of these other people were. But she also protested and carried signs in the days after that shooting. And, I mean, and this gave her a sort of uh, a voice. Right? Definitely. And I mean, it was it was a precarious situation for her, right? I mean, appearing on TV, uh, having her name in print as a undocumented immigrant, but uh, it really served to kind of uplift her. And what's what's you know to me that's eerie about all of this is she survives the shooting. She's in all these news Florida newspapers on television, and six months later, she's alone in a rape center. Mm. And part of this, and you get into your piece, and again, we're speaking with Jacob Reyes from uh, Axios Tampa Bay, who's written this piece in Teen Vogue about this young person, Susanna Mata, who is no longer living in Florida. She was an undocumented immigrant, and she had she was raped. Um, and in terms of getting help, what's that like for somebody in her situation, the undocumented, to deal with law enforcement? I mean, how does that, how does that play out in her case? I mean, it's... It's incredibly uh, difficult. I mean, what's what's been shown is that most sexual assaults are not reported and that reporting among immigrant communities is far lower. Um, there's a lot of distrust with law enforcement. Um, and even though there are, you know, legal protection that's, you know, uh, afforded to the victim, a lot of them just don't trust uh, these these officers or, or some of them are even afraid that, you know, if a police officer, for example, were to come to their home and they have undocumented relatives, what might happen then? And I think what we've seen in Florida, especially with uh, these these laws that, you know, increase uh, law enforcement's involvement with uh, immigration officials, I mean, it creates this intense Fear. And I mean, the bill sponsor, you know, said that the bill was intended to demonize undocumented immigrants. And I think it certainly had that effect among this population here. Why did she end up ultimately leaving, right? The story is uh, ultimately here. And her mother did not want to leave and is still staying here. Uh, but but uh, Susanna said she, she felt she couldn't, she, she couldn't be here. She couldn't live here anymore. Yeah, I, I think Susanna understood like what the intent of this law was. And the intent was that Florida is not a place for them. And she she couldn't stomach that any longer. I mean, she's remained in Florida after surviving a shooting in which 17 people died. She remained in Florida after being raped by a U.S. citizen. Who but, told her, if you tell, for two years he said, if you tell, I will report you, right? Yeah. Yeah, you'll be it, sent back to... She stood here after all of that, you know, and even like alone and afraid, she she believed that, you know, believed in a better, safer Florida. She believed in that promise of the American dream. But I mean, with this law, she, she just, she didn't see any reprieve. She didn't see any positive outlook. She knew she had to go. And she says it poignantly. The question should be, who do I need to call to report this? But the question will become, what is going to happen to me after I report this? Yeah, I mean, it, it it was hard enough for her in in 2018 to come to to the police um, and, and report what was happening to her, 
But, you know, she feels that what's happened in Florida and other, you know, legal experts have said the same, that this law is going to make it harder for other victims to report, harder for other victims to find their voice. And that's what you hear historically when it comes to these um, in terms of how much you crack down. Uh, Again, the unintended consequences are maybe intended in in some cases here because there's a there's an underground economy in the state uh, like there is throughout the country in this situation. But again, Ford has really gone above. And I know there's maybe there's some listeners out there who are applauding this, who think that, you know, the other states should do this. But uh, it it really again, we've heard a lot of anecdotal things. And I don't know if you have in your other reporting about this issue, because the issue, again, of this of this law and how. Uh, it's preventing some people from wanting to be here. Uh, workers, we're talking, we're hearing about in terms of you know construction, what have you, uh, or people you know who aren't able, you know that that, that again things and and historically the business community for right or wrong reasons have been the biggest proponents of not doing something like this, uh, especially when it comes to the E-Verify requirement when it comes to direct employees. But they they didn't they didn't put up much of a fight on this this law this year. So you know it. Uh, it did get much pushback at all. I mean, there was the progressive groups. I was up there the whole time seeing what was going on here. But usually they don't go that far. Governor Ron DeSantis, when he got in elected uh, 2019, cracked down on, quote unquote, sanctuary cities. And other than at one point, West Palm Beach was considered as such. We didn't have that. Uh, but he, he's, uh, he's muscled in and, and you know— got this thing passed now. Is there evidence that you came across in your reporting, Jacob, that suggests that um, laws like this, like Senate Bill 1718, further dissuade undocumented victims from reporting crimes like this? Yeah. uh, I I spoke to um, A.J. Hernandez-Anderson at the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, and, you know, she showed, like, me some research um, that that indicated that you know already like the the involvement with law enforcement from undocumented immigrants is, is very very small and not just undocumented but immigrants in general right because statuses can often be in flux so there's already a small amount of involvement with law enforcement and with a law like this I mean it further pushes them uh, into hiding I mean I, I spoke with Assad El Assad a professor at Stanford and he said that you know what's the, going to be the immediate effect of this law is that immigrants are going to withdraw from society until they understand and and know the new ways they have to navigate. But for, for the immediate moment right now, they're going to withdraw. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Skinny on WMNF.org. If you'd like to call us, dial 813-239-9663 or send an email to DJ at WMNF. Dot org, And we're talking with Jacob Reyes, a reporter for Axios Tampa Bay, who uh, has a story you can find on teenvogue.com. Um, Jacob, can I ask you, so you've been writing for Axios for how long now? Uh, I've been writing uh, for Axios since April. Uh, I, I got my start at Axios back in uh, 2021. Yeah. Okay. And so, are you, are you from South Florida? Where are you from? Or, or born and raised in Tampa? Ta- oh, Tampa guy. Okay. All right. And, yeah. And- Jacob uh, has also done a stint at uh, Politifact. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Got got some attention that way. <laughs> or you did a year there, maybe. Yeah, I did a little over a year there covering uh, Florida politicians, oh. uh, fact checking their statements. And how's it going at Axios? It's going well. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely been uh, great to have some some kind of editorial freedom and to write about a city that I love and I grew up in. Yeah, yeah. By the way, uh, uh, Jacob, if somebody's listening right now and uh, maybe they, they're in the same situation that Susanna found herself in, where there's this fear of reporting, 
um, but something bad has happened to them, rape or, or what have you, is there a safe path for them? Have you discovered, like, what's the safest route to report that crime and not worry about your, your immigration status? I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, legal avenues uh, that are, are provided uh, with the Violence Against Women Act. Um, there are other uh, U visas uh, that are are specifically created for for victims of uh, assaults uh, to to be able to report and to have an avenue of legal protection that is uh, you know that is independent from their abuser. I think often you find like with the Violence Against Women's Act. I mean, often you find these victims who are being you know abused by someone they know, right? Like this is not someone random. Often it happens. To buy it from a relative, uh, a step parent uh, who's Someone a U.S. providing citizen. housing, you exactly. Know? So, so, you, so if you're reporting your abuser, you might have no no place to live. These are the sorts of scenarios people get caught up in. Exactly. I mean, in Susanna's case, she was a minor, right? So she was able to, uh, you know, the Department of Children and Families. She stood in foster care for some time, um, and so like there are definitely uh, legal avenues. Uh, for for people to go to, I mean, uh, and it it all just starts with speaking out and, and going to the the police, which obviously is intimidating. But uh, I mean, there is there are legal avenues uh, for 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 a better life apart from this abuse. Do you know whether there's any assurance from local police departments that they you know aren't concerned about a crime victim's immigration status? I mean, uh, I if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, Hillsborough County sh- uh, Sheriff. Uh, try to like uh, address some of these concerns and fears with SB seventeen eighteen, and express that their job is is not to enforce uh, immigration. Again, I mean, a lot of these are statements, but the there's mm-hmm. there's something very different between intent and impact. And although the sheriff could be saying his intent is not to enforce immigration law, the impact of this law, the fear that it creates, is gonna keep people from this. So, I mean, there have been assurances from officials. I've reached out to the sheriff's office in Tampa Bay, but those assurances do little, I think. What's next for Susanna? Well, uh, Susanna hopes to, to, you know, she's in Santa Fe right now and she hopes to, to continue edu- her education, to graduate and get a good job. She's, she's hoping she could bring her parents there. Yeah. All right. Again, if you're just tuning in right now, we've got about five minutes left to go here on 88.5. The Skinny, Mitch Perry, Jacob Reyes from Axios, uh, where Ben Montgomery used to work, actually. Uh, so we're appreciative of you coming in right now. Uh, so um, anything else we want to talk about here in the next few minutes here uh, about your reporting, Jacob? But anything else you've been do- doing lately that uh, you want to tell people about? I mean, and I- how do they sign up for Axios Tampa Bay? Uh, you could sign up, you Google Axios Tampa Bay. Uh, you know, we have Axios on Twitter, Axios National. Um, so yeah, if you sign up, that'd be great. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm working with, uh, Catherine Varn, Celine Sanfeliz, um, where we're continuing to do, uh, to do local reporting, obviously. We're covering the Sunrunner and everything that's happened with that, uh, Ray has done some excellent reporting um, about some of these conversations about making these lives miserable. So uh, my colleagues just uh, they spent some time on on the bus talking to people, meeting uh, this this woman with with a parrot huh, and, and other. Yeah, I saw that people. this morning. In fact, what tomorrow, I guess, right? The rate now it's now it's no longer free after uh, to, uh, October one, which is Sunday, I guess it is. Of course. Let's remind people we're talking about the Sun Runner, St. Pete's uh, remarkable, interesting new from, from bu- downtown bus, bus to the system, beaches. From yes, the loop. yeah. And what's the issue now? Well, uh, the PT, uh, the 
Pask or sorry, Pinellas Transit, Transit Authority, uh, they they started fares a month earlier, and right. a lot of this has happened because uh, there were some uh, residents complaining about unhoused people right. using the the free bus service to go to St. Pete Beach, and uh, they claimed they were defecating in public and and harassing people, so. They decided to to start charging a fare, and what's interesting about this fare is that it can't be paid in cash. Oh, really? You have to have a uh, an Apple iPhone. Yep, it has to be paid with with some form of a debit card. Which you know, there has been some comments of of how that can affect um, equity. Yeah, interesting. Last time I tried to get on the bus uh, and pay with cash, uh, the guy just rejected it outright. I said, "What? What am I doing wrong?" And he said, you got to use a credit card. So evidently that's not uncommon. Uh, I'm not taking cash anymore. At least the precise amount of cash. I think that was my issue. <laughs> Reminding listeners, where you're listening to The Skinny on uh, WMNF. Uh, and uh, if you want to send us an email, dj at WMNF.org or give us a phone call here with the last few minutes with uh, Jacob Reyes, 813-239-9663. Hey, right before we get off the show here, I want to, I think most of our listeners probably heard the news this morning that California uh, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein passed away overnight at the age of 90. Uh, this is a big deal in, in California where I'm from, but this has got national implications. I'm seeing right now on Twitter, some people are really pushing the idea of uh, Gavin Newsom, now that he has to select a uh, replace her, that he choose Kamala Harris, the vice president, who was a California senator, of course, before she was uh, selected by uh, Joe Biden to be his running mate a couple years ago. I think that's not going to happen, but I think as people, some people want to push Joe Biden, you know, maybe not to be running. They don't want Kamala Harris to be his vice president. They think this is an avenue now for her to have a successful exit, if you will, uh, without, you know, falling down. And then Joe Biden can select somebody else. Who I can, wonder if there's precedent for that, a, a vice president stepping stepping back Yeah, into you the hear Senate. about this. Remember, we heard this going back to Dan Quayle days. We heard this, uh, even, believe it or not, I looked back at this, Joe Biden, when Barack Obama was struggling in 2011, around this time, uh, there was talks about Hillary Clinton being selected as his VP. It, you know, it really was. It, it didn't go anywhere, obviously. Uh, and of course, Obama won re-election. But as as these continuing issues with Joe Biden is concerned in terms of his viability for being reelected, that's, this is now what some people are pushing. I mean, again, the, Diane Feinstein's been not even passed away for a few hours yet, but you know the, the way the political world works, because Gavin Newsom has said that he will only take an interim, you know, senator. Um, and that's a big re-election next year uh, in California for her seat in 2024. Feinstein's head, she would not run for that seat. So um, something for us to watch as we uh, go along in our political week here. Cards are falling. Yeah. Yeah, indeed it is. And we Joel want to remind Ellen you show. a couple things is that uh, Joellen Shokey's coming up, uh, the hostess with Art the hostess. Your ear. Yeah, and also next week we'll be asking for your financial contributions if it's if you can do that. If you look in your heart and help us out here, WMF doing its fall fundraising drive where we're going to try to stay on the air. Well, you know, I'm sure we'll make it, uh, but in terms of... Uh, if you love us, call in. Yeah, yeah. So we'll be doing our best to have you uh, think about us and, and help keep this, to keep this show on the air, which is been on the air for just less than a, a year now, the skinny here. Uh, so I am, in fact, Mitch Perry, along with Ben Montgomery. Jacob Reyes, great to see you. Jacob, thank you for coming in. Great we had Alan on. Cohen and Andrew Warren in earlier. Uh, our friend Ray Roa, who will be back uh, maybe in a few weeks. I don't think he'll be back next week. But anyway, you are listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. We'll see you next week. Once again, Skip, thank you so much. And Irene for the phones. Thanks, you guys, for helping us out. See you we'll next see. week. Bye-bye.